pick up where we have been in the last few weeks in Acts chapter 2 as we're looking at the distinguishing marks of the uh, first century church as we compare it to our church in the 21st century and with the intent of kind of using this as a, as a measuring mark of where we are and how we're doing and how maybe perhaps we can do things better. So Acts chapter 2 beginning with verse 36, I invite you to stand with me as we receive this word together. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and this is how he concludes this message. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And God did this blessing to his word. You can be seated. Well, as we continue down this track of looking at the marks of the church, I'm not going to review all that we've covered thus far this morning in interest of time. But this morning, I want us to consider the fact that the church, the early church, the New Testament church, was a harmoniously unified church. You remember when Jesus prays in John 17, one of the emphases of that prayer is for unity. Now, for three years, Jesus had taught with his disciples, walked with his disciples. You remember, however, just before he was to meet with them at the Last Supper, they were arguing about who was the greatest among them. They were bickering about position. They were divided But in Gethsemane, Jesus chooses to pray this prayer. This was his emphasis. He prays in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wanted his followers to be united so that their testimony would be believable. You see, it's it's really a farce to say to the world, we can offer you the peace that passes understanding when we can't get along with each other. It is hypocrisy to say, well, we have the answer to strife when we argue and bicker within the realm of the church. Jesus said a house divided against itself will not stand. God despises division among his people. 
Proverbs 6.16 says that there are seven things that God hates, and one of these is a person who sows discord among brothers. So God doesn't bless a contentious church. Fighting negates testimony and quenches the Holy Spirit. So it's not an accident that when we come to the pages of the the book of Acts, that we see the church begin in harmony. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says the disciples were together in one accord. Three times we read in the text that we just read that the church was together. Verse 44 says all the believers were together. Verse 46 says every day they continued to meet together. The next sentence, they broke bread in their homes and they ate together. They were together. They were together. They were together. And by the way, we ought to come together tonight. We're going to have that ice cream social out on the lawn here. We've got a great time to to be together. We have the opportunity right after this service to be together for breakfast. That's kind of the way the church works. The spirit of unity made it possible for God's grace and the gospel to be proclaimed. Now, harmony is a fragile thing. In the early part of Acts, we see two occasions where that unity was threatened. In Acts chapter 6, the church is experiencing growing pains. A group of Hellenistic Jews complained that the widows, that their widows, were being neglected. If you know the story, they were complaining that we're not getting the same benefits that other widows were getting. Now, division is always a possibility when there is complaining. You know, complaining forces people to take sides. You're either right or you're wrong. But what we see is that the apostles moved quickly. They didn't ignore the problem. They evaluated the criticism, and then they made some adjustments. They they sought to better organize their program for widows. The Bible tells us they appointed seven spirit-filled men to oversee the program. Verse 5 says, this proposal pleased the whole group. And so unity was restored. Verse 7 says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. You see, we see that harmony was threatened by neglect, by complaint. It was restored by sensitivity and organization. And the church continued to be unified. And the benefit was it continued to grow. That's the the process. Going through this building project, man, are we fraught with opportunities to be divided God has, in fact, however, blessed us with a sweet spirit of unity all along the way. But one of the things I've heard, and this has been a regular complaint, if you will, is that we have this beautiful cross that we cover up with this gigantic screen in our sanctuary. Now, early on, when we installed the screen, the truth was, because of technology and whatnot, it wasn't a big deal because we didn't use the screen all that often. But as you know, as the years have gone by, we now use the screen all the time. I I say to people, well, at least you get to look at me, but that doesn't seem to be sufficient. (laughs) 
I, I, I've heard people go out of our sanctuary and say, well, what kind of church is that? They don't even have a cross in there. And, and they don't even realize. They've never even been exposed to that beautiful window and the cross that's behind that. So, so one of the things, and we've heard this, is we wanted to address that issue. And I, I want you to know that we're going to do some things in our renovation where we're going to move the screen to one side. We're going to make the cross central. Now, I think we're going to show, I, I may not show this to the second service. I'm just going to show this this to you. This is kind of a preview of where we're going and, and where things are. But there's going to be a light box behind the window. And, and so there's always going to be a glow coming through the window in, and, and then highlighting the cross. You see the architectural feature there that'll kind of make that central. And so the screen will move to the side. We think that that is going to be sufficient. And I'm really, really thinking that that's going to solve some of the issues there and, and appropriately put that cross at the center. Now, don't complain about that, okay? <laughs> In Acts 15, we see a, a theological disagreement that becomes a threat to the unity of the church. Acts 15 verse 1 says, certain individual, that was a preview by the way, you, there's a lot there that we're going to show you, uh, well, I'm not going to show you until we get in here, but, but it's, that was just kind of a, a, a hint. But certain individuals, Acts 15 verse 1 says, came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the customs talked by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So, in other words, there was this disagreement. Some were coming down and saying, listen, in order for you to be saved, you've got to become a Jew first. And so there was this deep debate going on. And the rest of verse 2 says, So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So, so they go to the apostles for mediation. They go to them for guidance. And in Jerusalem, they, they have the debate. They, they come to a resolution. And part of it is a compromise. The Gentiles, by the way, did not have to become Jews. But they would be required to refrain from eating certain meats. And they would have to restrain from sexual immorality. Acts 15.31 says that when these guidelines were read to the church at Antioch, the people read it and were glad for the encouraging message. So harmony is restored in the church, and the church prospers. And so what we learn is, is that when unity is threatened in the church, leaders need to act quickly to protect it. Sometimes that means adding to the organization. Sometimes it means unpleasant confrontation. Sometimes compromise. And sometimes just church discipline. But unity is an essential part of, of the church's uh, life. It, it is essential to be a witness to the world. We, we should always keep in mind what Paul writes in Ephesians 4 when under the guise of the Holy Spirit. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, in the church, and I think this is really true for any organization, there are basically four threats to unity. 
And I want to give you to these, and I want to kind of give, you to the, uh, give them to you in reverse order in terms of what I think their impact is. And so that, that fourth greatest threat, the, the, the fourth greatest threat is what I would call insens- an insensitive progressive. Now, you could probably come up with a better name, but that's the best one I could come up with. But this is the person who always shows disdain for tradition. For this person... Everything needs to change, and the sooner the better. Uh, This person undermines any sense of security. They completely ignore what has come before. They think they're creative. They think they're alive, but in fact, they're just working to impress others with their ideas and sometimes lack of decorum. It may be the way they dress or the music they listen to or what they think is art, or any number of things. This becomes an even more serious issue when they play loose with biblical principles. Well, I know what the Bible says about God's design for marriage, but between a husband and a wife, but boy, that just doesn't seem to fit today. I I, I know what the Bible says about God creating different species, but that was before Darwin and archaeology. Well, I know what the Bible says about human sexuality, but that was before modern psychology and understanding of genetics. In in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul warns the Ephesian elders that there will be savage wolves that will come who will distort the truth. They will be false teachers who, if not confronted, will divide the flock. Don't be one of those insensitive progressives. But I would say to you that there's probably even a greater threat. And the third greatest threat to the unity of the church is probably a traditional legalist. The the insensitive progressive wants to change everything. The legalist refuses to change anything. The legalist loves rules. Rules and policies that must never change. There was once a sign outside of a convent that read, Absolutely no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. This means you, signed the Sisters of Mercy. (laughs) A little disconnect there, isn't there? We can love our rules and traditions more than we love God and one another. The phrase of the traditionalist is, we've never done it that way before. (laughs) And the reason that person is often so dangerous is because they can appear so very spiritual. The legalist imagines that they're standing for truth when in fact they just may be guarding a precious tradition. Tradition can be good and and healthy to maintain, but we always need to remember that there is a difference between what is tradition and what is truly biblical. They may not be the same thing. Now, the third greatest threat to harmony of any group, I think, is the constant critic. This is a, a problem. I read the other day that people with sharp tongues tend to cut their own throats. 
And that may be true, but often before they do that, they can cut the church and people around them with their sarcasm. They can be caustic and critical, and they have no idea how much damage they are doing with their criticism. So they criticize leaders, and it diminishes that leader's energy. They criticize openly so that everyone is aware, and then they minimize the church's influence. Now here's the thing. They think they're contributing by always standing back and pointing out the flaws. And listen, that's pretty easy to do, especially around here. Some of you know uh, I'm going to be sending three kids to college this fall, and so money is rather going to be and has been rather tied around the Schultz household. Well, not long ago, I found myself rather livid with my wife Mary when I discovered a receipt for $250 for a dress that she'd bought. I said, Mary, how could you do this? She said, well, I was out at the store looking and it just caught my eye and I found myself trying it on. She explained it, it was like Satan was whispering to me. You look fabulous in that dress. <laughs> Buy it. I said, honey, you, you, know how, you know how I deal with that kind of temptation. I say, get behind me, Satan. Mary said, Jeff, I did that. But then he said, it looks fabulous from back here, too. <laughs> look, over the years... I've not always made the right decision as a pastor, and I'm sure that if you've been here for very long, you will find a good and even valid reason to criticize me and this church. You could probably criticize me for telling that joke, and you would probably be right on. And I may be in trouble, although I did ask for permission last night, so, okay, just so you ladies know. But friends, can we agree to this? Remember always that the church is the bride of Christ. And he loves her. Unconditionally. And when she is presented to him, she will be spotless and holy and absolutely beautiful. Be careful what you say about his church. But the number one cause of division in almost any organization, but certainly in the church, I think is probably uncontrolled ego. People become proud of their influence and their status. You see, people can start out good intentions. They serve and they give themselves and they participate. But... It's not long before that area of service becomes not so much an area of ministry, but an area of ego gratification. This is what I do. This is how I have given myself away. Well, after all I've done, they ought to listen to me. We deserve better than, I deserve better than this after all I've done. William Barclay wrote more than half the trouble in churches arise in the, about rights, privileges, and place. Now, 
fascinates me because we get right back to the where we started in the beginning. And they argued among themselves about who was the greatest. I came across a quote this week from John Newton. Some of you know that name. John Newton was an extraordinary gift to the church. He, of course, had been involved in the slave trade for a number of years, but he came to Christ. He repented bitterly of that sin, and he later wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. But at the heart of John Newton, when he got saved, was he was a pastor. He loved to preach, and he loved to care for people. He loved ministry. But as he got older, things changed. I don't know all the details. Maybe, didn't, maybe people didn't call on him as often to preach as they once did. Maybe he was a little slower. Maybe he wasn't quite as interesting. Maybe his voice didn't carry like it once had. But this is the quote I came across, and it was just beautiful to me. He said this. He said, my usefulness was the last idol I was willing to part with. But now I can part with that. And am confident to be laid aside and forgotten so that he may be glorified. Isn't that beautiful? It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Listen, Jesus wants us to be united And if you want to have unity in God's church, listen, from time to time, you're going to have to be willing to swallow your pride. It's going to take a person like Jesus. By the way, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he prayed, Father that they might be one, that the world will believe you that you have sent me. May this church be a testimony to that kind of spirit, to this world, as we are unified together, not perfect, not above criticism. Jesus said this, by this you will know that you belong to me, that you are my disciples, by the way you love one another. Let's get really good at that. And God will bless us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what you are doing in our church this morning as we come, we celebrate, as we think about these testimonies that have been shared. I just pray, Lord, that you would teach us more and more how to love each other. And that, Lord, you would continue to teach us humility and patience and bearing up with one another. That we would cling to the, to the sweet spirit of unity that, Lord, you have provided in our church. I pray in the days ahead you will continue to bless us in that. And that, Lord, we would learn to, to love being together. Because, Lord, we love being with you. Where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in their midst. And because we, we enjoy your presence, we just want to be together. Lord, thank you for what you want to do in our lives. Lord, right now, if there's anything that we need to confess, 
May we do that openly. Maybe there's a person we need to forgive. Maybe we've been holding a grudge. Maybe we see in ourselves a a critic or a traditionalist or a progressive that has just maybe hurt others. Maybe our ego has gotten in the way and suddenly, Lord, we've edged you out and we realize it's become more about us and the spotlight rather than, Lord, your glory. Help us to be the church you've called us to be. I pray this in your name.